Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, May the 10th, 2023. And uh, as normal for Wednesdays uh, in May, the economic news is mixed like the weather uh maybe more uh, on the east coast than on the west coast here it's always sunny of course in california um apparently according to the financial times one of our great authorities on business and economics uh, u.s inflation eased to 4.9 percent in april as the fed tightened tightening takes effect so inflation is starting to get under control but according to the journal which alongside the ft is a very reliable indicator of our economic truth um this we may be having to get used to what it calls high inflation the the chart of the wall street journal suggests that inflation is now a reality this might represent what uh, my guest today calls the new normal. Felix Salmon is one of uh, the world's most colorful and well-named financial correspondents. He's the chief financial correspondent of Axios. He writes about all sorts of things, especially inflation and the banking crisis, um, and is very much an authority on the bigger trends in our economy. And he's just out with a new book, which he's going to talk to us about, The Phoenix Economy. Work, Life, and Money in the New Not Normal. And he's joining us from his downtown Manhattan work-life loft near Chinatown. Uh, Felix, welcome. Thank you very much. Happy to I be here. I like this idea of the new not normal. But uh, b before we get to that, um, when did we start thinking, Felix, that we weren't living in normal times? 2016, um, we always, I think up until 2016, we thought of the 2008 financial crisis as, you know, aberration, a crisis. It began, it went on too long. The recession was really bad and then it was over and then we could get back to normal. I think in 2016, with the Brexit vote and the election of Donald Trump, we realized that the repercussions of that were going to be much bigger than we thought thought a whole bunch of impossible things were going to start happening um obviously the um invasion of ukraine in 2022 was another one but the big one which i really um focus on in this book is the pandemic which was the first pandemic in 100 years and we had just really we knew that it was possible thought about you know what if a pandemic hits but we didn't really know what was going to happen we didn't know how we would react and indeed all of the pandemic preparedness studies were basically thrown out the window the minute that the pandemic actually hit. Everything started becoming very weird and very, very unpredictable. And my thesis is going to continue to be in that weird and unpredictable state for at least a decade. Felix, I buy the idea, perhaps, that uh, COVID was unusual, but I don't buy the idea that 2016 was such a big deal. I mean, so what? Britain voted to get out of the EU. It, it didn't really matter to anyone. It doesn't even matter to the Brits, really. Um, <laughs> it, it matters very what, much what's to the, the Brits. What's the big deal and, about it? it? I mean, even Trump, uh, you, okay. you mentioned before we went live that he's 
he just was in your local court dealing with his latest sex scandal. I mean, he's annoying, but he's been around for years too. Convince me more that 2016... Is it in your view that 2016 represents the end of normality or our perception of normality? Because there's a big difference. I, I, I definitely think of it as the end... Well, the end of a, what you can see in historical terms is a very very different um, period, say 70 years of unusual calm, at least in the, the rich Western world in, in the US and Western Europe. Um, basically, from 1945 to 2015, we had a situation where things were predictable. You could make long-term plans. Um, we had incredibly strong institutions. We had public trust in those institutions. We had common truths that we could agree on and most importantly we had peace and prosperity and you know we had the what the french call the, the 30 glorious years after 1940 everything just grew and worked and you had um amazing wealth creation and that started spilling over into countries like korea and everything looked like it was moving up and to the right in a steady and predictable and good way for the planet and then all of started coming apart in in 2008 but we didn't realize the degree to which it was coming apart in 2008 until 2016 where you had these breaks in the form of brexit and trump that really were a repudiation of that entire system it was it was the populations of both the US and the UK, you can argue about whether it was a majority or not, but it was certainly a very large number in both cases of people basically saying, no, we don't want that system at all. We want something much more chaotic. And and they wound up voting in these chaos agents in the Johnson and Donald, Donald Trump. And that ushered in a period of relative chaos, which is what we're in right now. I want to get to that chaos, but I just want to push back in one way. We had the political economist, I think, I think in fact, she's the professor of political economy at Cambridge University, Helen Thompson, on the show last year. She's written a book in a more macro sense about our new economic reality, suggesting it's a return to the 1970s, because in the 70s, we had hyperinflation. We had the growth of terrorism in the West, uh, an, an apocalyptic sense culturally and otherwise that things were on the brink. New York City almost burnt down or shut down in the 1970s. Is our situation uh, post-2016, Felix, any really different, any more dramatic or worrying or transformative than what happened in the 70s in those hyperinflationary times? It was inflationary. It wasn't hyperinflationary. I mean, but in, inflation was a real worry. Stagflation was a real worry. Paul Volcker had to come in and raise interest rates and, and kill it. Um, and yeah, like New York came to the brink of default and there was a much greater global reliance on oil um, that allowed oil producing nations to... Um, to really cause major geopolitical earthquakes. And that's exactly what happened. And you're right that in terms of if you compare crime in the 70s to crime now, like any kind of crime wave that people are worried about right now, 
pales in comparison to what we saw in the 70s. Again, by the way, this was a function, weirdly, of oil. Like, this was the uh, leaded gasoline. This was lead that people in, which caused, um, basically, violence, in, especially in young men. Um, and when we took the lead out of gasoline, crime just plunged around the world. It was amazing when that happened. So, yeah, the 70s were not a great period of history. I don't think anyone is saying that. And you're well taken that we have had relatively chaotic events in the past. But even during the 70s, I think we had a, sh a set of shared common values and a, sh a set of shared truths that we don't have now. We now live in a world where we live in a country where 40% of the population think that Donald Trump won the 2020 election, which is just not true. And where we can't agree on basic facts like that, that undermines democracy in a way that, you know, inflation actually does not. Your book is divided into three parts. You've, your first section is on time and space, the second on mind and body, the third on business and pleasure. Is the issue of time and space this what what you suggested was a kind of uh, epistemological or ontological fragment fragmentation? Is is that why today's world is is no longer normal because people disagree on what exactly reality is and isn't? Yes, yeah, so, uh, absolutely. They um, we've lost the ability to agree on things we did the epistemic crazy diagnose in the early pages of the book is one where the um large majority of the population basically cannot keep up with the um changing facts on the ground right so if you remember back to 2020 when the virus hit we didn't understand it obviously it was a brand new virus and that, you know, a lot of people thought it was a germ and people were disinfecting their groceries and worrying about fomites. And then we moved on from that and stopped wearing gloves everywhere. But um, suddenly masks became much more important. Um, there was a whole aerosolization. Um, masks became controversial. Then vaccines became controversial. And the science changed quickly enough and frequently enough and knowledge changed quickly and frequently enough that in that we live we found ourselves in this uncomfortable world we left the that we were used to where you could just get whatever facts you wanted at your fingertips and they were just there and they were facts and we entered this world where facts were fun were were protean and they were changing the whole time and people couldn't cope with that and they wound up just picking a set of facts that they wanted and sticking with them and that you know could it be around masks it could be around background whether donald trump Trump won the election and they didn't believe in, in that sort of shared conception of truth anymore. And that was profoundly destabilizing. And yet, Felix, no one, not even the craziest Trump people, uh, doubt the truth that the, the FT or the, or the journal uh, published today. None, none of the people who believe that... Um, that Trump was or wasn't elected la last time around believe that all these inflation numbers are invented. So has economic reality. <laughs> well, has I, that... I can assure you, I, if, if you, if you read, oh, my, they do? Um, <laughs> if you read my emails, so they get at Axios, 
Um, there is definitely a bunch of conspiracy theories around around inflation, 100%. Now, you know, do they think there's no inflation? No, a lot of them think there's much higher inflation than we are actually seeing. Everyone saying, don't you? These, these inflation numbers, I know that prices have doubled in the past three years. It's like, what? Uh, no. <laughs> but coming back to the new normal when it comes to inflation, as I said, the, the journal believes that the new normal uh, is a higher inflation. Does this... Is this important in your view in terms of your Phoenix economy? I mean, it's an economy that's coming back from the death, which seems to be the case. It's always amazed me that it survived COVID and it continues to survive. Um, what, or maybe let me rephrase the question, uh, Felix. Um, what is the biggest danger to our economy? Of course, the, these default talks go on between Joe Biden and Republican leaders. Can anything bring it down? Can the Phoenix economy be undermined in some way or other? Um, so, yeah, the book is, is broadly optimistic, but it's uh, definitely optimistic in a, a hedged way. Much bigger upsides and much bigger downsides at the same time. Um, inflation cuts both ways, right? If you look at those... 30 glorious years uh, after the Second World War, especially in Europe, you actually had really high inflation, which did a good job of inflating away debts and acting as an equalizing force. Inflation isn't everywhere a bad thing. Um, in fact, if you go back to shortly before the pandemic, you had people like Larry Summers saying that the inflation target that the Fed has should be raised from 2% to maybe 3 or 4%. Um, in which case, we're actually not far off that 4% right now, sort of a reasonable range even right now at 49 and we're still coming down. Um, so I do agree that getting inflation down from 4.9 to 2 is going to be harder than it was to get inflation down from you know, 8.9 to 4.9. But I think there are bigger things to worry about in the economy than inflation, which ultimately helps anyone with student loans, it helps people with mortgages, you know, it's, it, it can be good for people with debts rather than for savers. And that acts as an equalizing force, right? Because the savers are the rich and the debtors are the poor. So what worries you most about our new normal? What is the thing that could destroy what you call this phoenix economy the one that keeps on seemingly coming back from the dead it, it does come back i mean yeah there are I, I the one thing beyond the u.s debt default that worries me the most is probably um, china invading taiwan um, another pandemic is almost certain and could be much deadlier and could be a uh, could could be deadly in terms of the relatively young and healthy. If you remember, well, you don't remember, but in the 1918 um, Spanish flu... I remember it very well, Felix. <laughs> yeah, you've been around a bit longer than I have. But for, for the people who lived through the 1918 Spanish flu, um, that was very deadly. But the thing about it was that the people who experienced the worst mortality, the people who died, were not the people who died in COVID, who were basically um, elderly uh, people over the age of 75. It was actually men between the ages of 18 and 30 who died the most in that um, in that pandemic. And if we had a new pandemic that attacked people in the prime of their lives rather than people. Yeah, in, but that's, uh, that's like that would, had the, it's it's unlikely. It's certainly unlikely in the short term. Um, it's, well, I, I mean, I, I, everything, I, I, everything unexpected is like unlikely in the short term. Right. 
but there will be another pandemic. There's no knowing when it will come. And as for the invasion of Taiwan, you know, I don't know anyone who thinks it's never going to happen. I'm surprised you didn't bring up the environment, maybe politically you think that might be a little bit cooked up but but coming back no, to no, your no, thing, no. The, the, but the, the, let's the, let, leave that for the moment but yeah. let, let me come back to your issue on china mm-hmm. you know three years ago if someone had said you know russia invades ukraine it changes everything and if a war lasts 18 months and tens of thousands of people get killed and it affects the supply system and the farming system the world will be dramatically changed. And yet we've had this Ukraine war, which I remember when it broke out, people like Peter Osnos came on my show, these sort of classic East Coast liberals, and said, this changes everything. Nothing will ever be the same, but everything's remained the same. We can, I mean, it's 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 one thing to live in San Francisco or New York during the Ukraine war. It's obviously quite another to live in Ukraine or on the front lines. But nonetheless, we can live through that. And we can probably live through, I mean, unless it's a nuclear war, we could probably live through a war in Taiwan, couldn't we? So, okay, the first thing you need to know is that you're absolutely right that the war in Ukraine was only destabilizing than people initially thought it would be. Um, Two big things didn't happen, right? Uh, The first big thing that didn't happen was that oil prices, gas prices didn't stay high forever. Uh, We had that spike in gas prices and then they came way back down. And one of the reasons for that, though, is in much of Western Europe, in much of Germany and France, people were very cold this past winter. You know, they, they weren't heating their houses because there was a real shortage of, um, of, of energy. But we got through that. The, the other interesting thing that everyone thought would be really important was when we cut off from the SWIFT payments network. Everyone said, well, that's the nuclear op- option. That's going to destroy the Russian economy there and then. It didn't, right? We have very little visibility into how things are going to play out. You're absolutely right about that. Um, but I, I do think that Taiwan is different. You know, if you look at the way that microchips run the world, if you look at the continued shortage of new cars in America, that's entirely a microchip problem that stems from the supply chain problems in the early days of the pandemic. And if you look at the share of the global microchip industry that is housed in Taiwan, which is you know, upwards of 70%, depending on which chips you're looking at, there's no way that a Chinese invasion of Taiwan would fail to just disrupt the global supply chain and the global manufacturing economy in ways that we can barely... Mm, I, I, yeah, you maybe. I'm not sure whether to say I hope you're right or wrong. We will see. I hope we won't see. I hope Phoenix, we won't but, see. Coming yeah. back on the environment, you, you haven't mentioned that yet. Do you not see this as an important piece in the Phoenix economy? We, it's we've done a lot crucial. of shows on how innovation and uh, clean energy and all sorts of other innovations in that area can actually save our economy. So it's, a, it's an important destabilizing force. Uh, it, you know, it's causing war and it's causing mass migration and it's causing political chaos because mass migration causes political chaos. It is something felt more intractable pre-pandemic than it does now. The the one thing we could maybe get some hope from in the spring of 2020 was the way the world came together and just stopped. Everyone stopped what they were doing, stayed at home, 
lockdown for the greater good. We had successful collective action. No one believed that that degree of collective action around the world was possible, and we showed that it was possible. If we can do that for the pandemic, then in theory, at least, we can do that in terms of carbon emissions and global warming. In practice, it could be much harder. It would be much harder. But at least we've got a glimpse of what is. Um, and then, as you say, yes, the if we do manage to come together and if we do manage to find ways to reconfigure our economy, and we did that as well during the pandemic, right? That the economic doomsayers said that if we are going to stop moving around, if we're going to tax um, human uh, being close to each other, which is basically what we were doing, if we're saying you can't be close to each other, then, then the economy can't work. We're going to get major... Uh, depressions and recessions and that kind of thing. And in fact, we found ways around it. And the fact that we that the economy grew in the face of this incredibly lethal pandemic that killed a million Americans shows that in the even in the face of climate change, if we're finding solutions, they can help the economy, they can grow the economy. And that's the you know that's the dream of the Green New Deal. I'm I'm broad more pessimistic than, uh, than you know net net when it comes to global warming I, I think it's going to make the world worse rather than better but yeah a bit like the pandemic the the phoenix economy kind of dynamics of something vibrant rising from the ashes could obtain there as well the ft one thing that doesn't seem to have changed is that banks continue to make a ton of money ft have a piece today that in spite of the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and a number of other small banks, particularly out here, U.S. banks generated a record $80 billion first quarter profits in 2023. I'm curious, Felix, we've done a number of shows about the end of the neoliberal world. And most people agree that neoliberalism has ended. No one's quite sure what's going to replace it. Is it conceivable that neoliberalism, even if we've sort of written it off and written its obituary one way or the other, continues to be the the dominant operating system of our early 21st century economy. It might not be quite as hardcore, as Thatcherite, as Reaganite um, as it was, but it still remains true. And it still remains true that all the money is in banking and in Wall Street and in tech. Yeah, I, I, it was so dominant for so long that it won't die overnight. And you're right that we haven't discovered what's going to replace it. And we're in this sort of weird liminal zone between neoliberalism and whatever comes next. But I think there is a certainty that replace it and that there just isn't any popular buy-in behind neoliberalism. And that if you look at the relations between the US and China, particularly, which is the dominant and most important bilateral economic relationship in the world, um, they have moved very much against the old neoliberal conception of more trade, more better, and towards something much more zero-sum and much more adversarial. And that is not going to change. And neoliberalism, like, you know, if you look at the banks making lots of profits, you know, that's a, a function of Fed policy. It's a function of the way that banks are being sort of forced to make profits in a weird way from the um, interest on excess reserves at the Fed, from bailing out, or not from bailing out, from rescuing banks like Silicon Valley Bank. You have this thing called bad will, which increases profits. It gets a little bit tech 
technical. Uh, but those banks which are making profits are smaller and uh, smaller and smaller in number. They get they're, they're getting bigger and bigger, and we're lo- and we're losing that kind of connective t- tissue in the regions that is so important. I do think that the United States is very well placed in the sort of post global world to be this really you know, wide single market, um, which is going to be increasingly important as the world fragments. But you know, are you be are you going to be able to get like the loans that you need if you don't have a big regional bank? Yeah, probably, but it, it's going to be an awkward transition. I have the name for your new book uh, after Phoenix Economy. You can call it the Liminal Zone. I, there's, there's a lot of quest, There's a lot of talk in this book about liminal periods and the way uh, you might really define what the... liminal means. Not not all our listeners <laughs> as erudite as you. So so um, basically. There's this thing called the rite of passage, which you've probably heard of. You, you know, you you go into the rite, then you have the rite. Think of a marriage or a, you know, funeral or something. And then it ends, and you come back out. And that weird period in between is liminal. It's that it's that period in between one thing which you understand and another thing that you understand, and you know that other thing that you understand is coming, but you don't. And it's very awkward, and it's not a pleasant place to be. And that's kind of where we were for much of the pandemic. And I think on a sort of big picture geopolitical, you know, what comes after neoliberalism um, and you know, perspective, that's where we are right now. We're, we're, we're awkwardly trying to find our way through, you know, well-lit room to another well-lit room. And we don't know what the new one is. And right now we're in this kind of dark and unfamiliar passageway. Rather like waiting for a London bus. You wait and wait and wait, and then they all come at the same time. There was an interesting piece in the FT. Again, I, I love the FT. I've read these sorts of pieces so many times, Felix, and I know you touch on this in the book. Big law firms fall out of fashion with idealistic Gen Z. The idea that Doesn't Gen Z just don't want to work at big law firms. They don't want to work at big banks. They don't want to work at big tech companies. One of the things that COVID seemed to trigger, and we've done many shows on this in the COVID years, was what work looks like. We did one with James Sussman, an anthropologist, another with my old friend Julia Hobsbawm on the end of the office. We're all going to be working in work loft situations. And then the end of this work-life balance or this recalibration is... COVID changed anything when it comes to work, and particularly in a generational sense. Is there any truth that uh, that the Gen Z is, my kids, for example, are they going to do things differently or are they going to whine about not wanting a job and then in their late 20s realize that they don't have any choice and get one and be like you and I? So, yeah, the people who go into big law... Um you know, are always a tiny minority that self-selects. And if you don't, you know, most people would not want a job like that of any generation. And most people of any generation don't take jobs like that. And if Gen Z doesn't want to those jobs, that just means that like every generation that preceded them. Um, the, the really interesting phenomenon that I saw during the pandemic was less the Gen Zs not wanting to take these sort of drudgy nine-to-five office jobs, but rather the boomers. You saw resignation, a huge number of like people in their 50s um, and early 60s just saying, you know, I wasn't planning on retiring, but you only live once. I've got to enjoy my life. I've actually got enough money to be able to retire. I'm just going to quit the workforce and I'm going to leave and I'm going to enjoy however many years I have left as 
best I can because why would I, you know, I, I hate my boss, this is terrible, and I'm just going to quit. And the labor force participation rate among, you know, sort of 55 to 65s fell substantially and has not come back. And that is profound. And a lot of the that generation who did stay in, they decided they were going to stay in the workforce, but they were going to work remotely from somewhere pleasant in the countryside. And that really helped to... heard that and, story, Felix. Yeah. How many of... And I heard lots of our friends out here in San Francisco, oh, we're going to move to Barcelona. We're going to move to Greece. We're going to move to the countryside. Anyone can be anywhere. And yet cities have remained enormously uh, valuable uh, and vibrant. Yeah. And yep. real estate prices are as high in downtown New York or San Francisco as they've ever been. So has mm-hmm. anything really changed? Are these people... Huge change. Huge change. What you're, Yeah, and you're absolutely right. The cities are more vibrant than, than ever. What you saw was those, you know, late 50s types leaving the cities and being replaced by the early 20s Gen Z types, right? That That's made the cities much more vibrant. You've got the people who didn't really want to be there anymore, but felt they had to be for work purposes, leaving because they no longer have purposes. And what you have coming in is the kids who really want to be in the city, often not for work purposes. There's a whole influx of people in New York in their early 20s who live here just because they want to live here. They can work, they do work remotely, and they could work from anywhere, but they want to be in New York because it's the place to be. It's the center of the universe. And so that's awesome. New York, much more vibrant. It's increased demand for real estate. Um, Obviously, working from home increases demand for real estate because you have basically a movement of capital from commercial real estate into residential real estate. Every piece of residential real estate doubles as an office in some ways. You need more space for that. You need more room or bedrooms for that. Everyone wants private space. And that has kept demand for real estate high, even as demand for commercial real estate has shrunk and, and is, is looking quite weak right now and could cause another banking crisis. Who knows? Um, so there are big, profound changes in how are constructed and who lives in the cities. But you're right. The cities aren't going away. They're more important than ever. What about the existential threat? The one thing we haven't talked about um, is AI. FT has a piece today from one of the founders of DeepMind, the the Google-owned AI company, that AI will create a serious number of losers. I'm not sure why that deserves a a headline. I think we all know that. Um, There was an interesting piece in The New Yorker by the science fiction writer Ted Chiang on how AI could become the new McKinsey and exaggerate inequality. What's your take on the impact of this latest AI revolution, which seems to be real on your Phoenix economy? Is it just more of the same, more of the new not normal, or is it a new not not normal, Felix? <laughs> um, so the rule of the new not normal is to expect the unexpected. We have, have you know, people coming out and saying that AI is going to kill us all and we have to stop it right now. And I, you know, consider that to be an incredibly low probability event. But by the same token, I am saying that extremely low probability events are going to happen much more frequently. And so we have to be prepared for them. I am skeptical that the current generation of AIs, the large language model AIs, are really going to be quite as powerful as everyone says, but maybe some other AI will come along and be powerful and cause lots of people to lose their jobs. Um, It's an interesting toy right now. Um, It's a 
great products there. So it can help to boost economic growth and productivity, I think, hopefully. Um, but yeah, it's mostly what it is, is unpredictable. You know, progress in AI goes in fits and starts. It goes nowhere for decades and then it suddenly leaps forward. And don't know how it's going to play out. Anyone who does is lying. I am probably more on the skeptical side of things when it comes to AI than, than the consensus. Um, but I, ha I hold that belief very loosely and I'm very open to persuasion that it could be a big deal. Um, definitely new, not normal in terms of just looking through a glass darkly. You know, we just have no idea what's coming. Well, Felix, um, it's always a pleasure talking to you. We'll get you back on the show, your new book, The Phoenix Economy. It's just out. Really interesting take on work, life, and money in the new, not normal. Uh, we have to end not with a, a salmon joke, but with a lobster roll joke. I know you make lobster rolls both the literal and metaphorical heart of our Phoenix economy. What does an understanding of lobster rolls, Felix, tell us about the Phoenix economy, our new, not normal? So the... The lobster roll at um, in Kennebunkport is my favorite lobster roll in the world, and I spoke at length. You're making me hungry. I'd love they to are go. incredibly delicious. You can you can buy them on goldbelly.com, and I can highly recommend that you do because they're amazing. And what they do is they teach us about how and in, where inflation comes. That if you have supply constraints, you know there's just a certain number of humans that you can fit into your restaurant to boil seawater and cook lobsters and pick lobsters and create lobster meat that and you also want to keep your customers happy by serving them delicious lobster rolls that exist you have to raise your prices because that's the only way to keep demand in check otherwise you just get you know you you sell out by 2 p.m and everyone who comes after that just gets turned away and that's a bad consumer experience so the price mechanism of you know, raising prices in order to be able to cope with increased demand is a reflection of revealed demand and revealed changes in desires and revealed, you know, taste for lobster roll and that kind of thing. It's not, I think, the way that most people think about inflation is just the prices are going up and that's terrible, right? It does mean that workers can get paid more. We have seen in the economy that especially back of house restaurant workers are being treated much better than they ever were pre-pandemic. And this is all quite healthy. So I think if you look at lobster rolls, one of the things you can do is come come away from that by looking at a large chunk inflation and saying, well, actually, this is kind of good inflation. It's people who used to be underpaid now getting paid a, a, a living wage. It's prices reflecting demand. And it's something that won't last forever because just because it, we went up once in re, in response to increasing demand does not mean that demand is going to continue to stays at this level. Prices will be perfectly happy where they are.